and welcome to Science Shambles producer Trent here. This episode is a recording of the live Q&A show we do each and every Sunday, well pretty much each and every Sunday. That is live and free on our YouTube channel so you can go to youtube.com slash cosmic shambles to see who's coming up each week and watch live and ask questions live as well. If you've got any questions uh, for our guests each week, you can email them to us as well at contact at cosmicshambles.com and we will put them to our panel. And since this is a recording from the live show, bear in mind, if there's a couple of little sound blips or anything like that here and there, that is because, well, we do do it live over Zoom and Skype and stuff. So you know how uh, finicky those things can be at times. And also, since it's live on YouTube, uh, some elements might be slightly more visual than uh, we would normally have for a podcast. So keep that in mind while you're listening. If you'd like to support the Cosmic Shambles Network, you can go to patreon.com slash cosmic shambles and subscribe and you get lots of extra stuff as well as a warm glow for supporting all the stuff we do at Cosmic Shambles. The Tips for Existence series is exclusive to Patreon supporters where Robin chats about meaning in a meaningless universe with lots of different entertainers and scientists like Tim Minchin and Brian Green and Katie Brand and Neil Gaiman. Nicole Stott, Andrean, and lots, lots more. And also there's the Uncanny Hour documentary series. That's exclusive to Patreon, where we look at some of the weird and wonderful bits of counterculture, like UFOs and the films of John Carpenter and Paul Jennings and Silent Running and all that sort of stuff. That is hosted by Robin with lots of special guests on that, like Stuart Lee and Alan Moore and pretty much everyone from the League of Gentlemen, Mark Kermode, Linda Marrick, Jenny Roan, Helen Chersky, Samira Ahmed and lots more as well. Patreon.com slash Cosmic Shambles. You can also go and rate and review the podcast five stars on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. That helps us out. Check out everything else at CosmicShambles.com. And now on to this week's Q&A show, I hand you over to your hosts, Robin Ince and Dr. Helen Chersky. Hello and welcome to the Sunday Science question and answer session here on Cosmic Shambles. You, the, the more observant among you will notice that I am not Robin. Uh, the very observant among you on Twitter this morning will have noticed that Robin is in a field somewhere in Devon and that therefore because he is in a field somewhere in Devon he's not able to join us. He was supposed to but the transport didn't cooperate and um, anyway he's in a field. So uh, it's just me this morning, but I have two fabulous guests. So we have lots and lots of stuff to talk about. Before. We're going to be talking about uh, conspiracy theories and superstitions and why, you know, the sort of this this sort of fuzzy line that where everyone wants to believe that they see the evidence which tells the truth and there are that is not necessarily everyone just doesn't agree basically and so we come up with all these weird beliefs and it's a really interesting human thing we're going to be talking about that but before we get to all of that of course there are um there's some admin at the top of the show as there always is uh, you've heard this before, we'll say it again, but if you're able, Cosmic Shambles really appreciates your support. The live shows aren't still up and running yet, but if you'd like to support us on Patreon, you can go to patreon.com slash Cosmic Shambles and support us there. These shows will continue to be free, uh, but there is other stuff that you get as a Patreon supporter if you're into that kind of thing. So do we, we are very happy to have a broad audience, but if you can support us, Cosmic Shambles really appreciates that. And the live shows are coming back, it seems. So uh, in December, we always do our nine lessons and carols for curious people. We couldn't do it last, last year, but this year 
we are back. So on the 10th, 11th, 17th and 18th of December, we'll be at King's Place and there'll be a family matinee on the 11th as well. Um, and so there are tickets on sale, cosmicshambles.com slash nine lessons. And as usual, there's a whole range of guests. So uh, Robin will be hosting. I'll be on there. Jocelyn Belbonell is joining us. Mark Watson, Chris Lintot, Chris Jackson, all the Chrises, um, Pragya Argval, and lots more people. So there's a whole th those the guests will be announced over the coming months. But we are very excited to be back for live shows at King's Place uh, because I don't know about you, but it wouldn't be Christmas for me without all of that now. So on the Cosmic Shambles shows this week, tips for existence is uh, David McAlbot and. The, on Book Shambles, it's Itsy Sutty. So lots of ideas, very different ideas there. Um, next week, we are not entirely sure whether there's going to be a Sunday Science Q&A only because it might be that producer Trent is um, off filming exciting things for future special versions of Science Shambles. And so it's not entirely sure that, that that's going to happen yet. But if it does, we won't be live online next week but of course we'll be back the week after and there will be the very exciting episode after that uh with all the material uh that uh, he's been preparing so there's all of that lots of stuff coming up but perhaps there might be you might get a week off next week um and as always if you've got live questions as we're going along do please put them in the chat um or on twitter and uh, trent will find them and funnel them to me and we can ask our guests we are going to have absolutely no shortage of stuff to talk about today but still ask your question and we will do our best to answer all the questions that we get so it's uh we've got two guests this week and um you may you may be familiar with both of them they've both been very strong voices on these topics before uh, we've got michael marshall who has done lots of things, lots of in, things the general, in the general society uh, and the host of the be reasonable podcast so, so it's very reasonable sounding non-extreme names there um, and we've got deborah hyde who is an expert on um the folklore of the malign and macabre um and she's a fellow of the committee for skeptical inquiry and she is currently well we'll talk about this later but she is currently involved in a vampire case uh, the uk's most famous vampire case i didn't know we had one but apparently we've not only got one we've got a most famous one um, so we're going to be talking about that but um let's start marsh with you you've got a show and tell for us how are you this morning let's start with that bit i'm i'm very good although i do notice that we're talking about conspiracy theory and somehow rob make it so i'm wondering whether they got to him whether they've been preventing him from taking part clearly there's something going on there a bit rum um, so yes but I'm, I'm very good i have got something to show you um what i want to show you is a souvenir i picked up from possibly my favorite weekend of my life which is the three days that i spent in a hotel at the uk's flat earth convention in april 2018 so i spent three days in a hotel with uh, about 160 people who believe the world was flat and it's one of the most fascinating weekends I've ever spent because what I've found there was a lot of flat earthers have different beliefs about what the world looks like. Because lots of them do believe that the world looks a bit like this, the Arismuthal equidistant model, where you've got the Arctic Circle in the middle and Antarctica is a ring of ice around the edge. But not all of them agree that Antarctica is a ring of ice. Lots of them believe that instead of the ice ending at Antarctica, it just goes on forever in all directions and that the world is an infinite plane in all directions that bisects reality which first of all is an idea that I love, that the world bisects reality. Um, but what I like about this as well is that lots of the people who believe that the ice goes on forever think, well, we're living in a puddle in the ice. And if we're in a puddle in the ice, 
why isn't there another puddle in the ice and another puddle in the ice? And maybe there's land in those puddles and maybe there's creatures on that land. And that's where aliens come from. And I think what's happened here is you've got someone who already believed that aliens are routinely visiting the Earth, who then comes to believe the world is flat. And rather than recognizing there's a conflict between those two ideas, because if the world is flat and the planets aren't real or the planets aren't accessible, then aliens can't get to us. Instead of recognizing that conflict, they just push the ideas together to form something new. And now the visitation of aliens is actually proof of the flat Earth. They're just coming from the next pond over. And this is something I learned time and again from uh, from hanging around conspiracy theorists is that often when challenged with another idea that doesn't fit their worldview, instead of confronting their worldview and challenging it and seeing whether it's true, they'll just take this idea and try to push it in. And it's why we see ideas like the flat earth accumulate other conspiracy theories. So not only do flat earthers believe that the world is flat, but they believe that chemtrails are out there trying to poison our minds, that the, the fluoride in the water is toxic, that big pharma can cure cancer, but they don't want you to know about it. And that there's a shadowy cabal of elites running the world behind the governments, the new world order. And they even speculate as to the religion that those particular elites, uh, elites are part of. And so it does really spiral into this big worldview. So I think the big take on message I got really was that these believers aren't necessarily coming to believe in a belief because they are persuaded by it. What they're really doing is rejecting mainstream belief. They're being part of the out group when they don't feel they can be part of the in group. And I think when you start to look at conspiracy theories through that kind of lens, you maybe start to understand them a little better. And, and just to come back to the, uh, we're going to talk lots about all of this, but the map that you showed. So they, so they actually, that someone's actually gone to the effort of producing a map and printing it out so that everyone, the one, the, the big, um, it's the, the same big one. one, it's the same, it's the same image. Yeah, sorry to make you yeah. the big thing again. So that is, that's the, you know, that I've got a map, I haven't got, got, one, got one in this room, but I've got a big map of the world on my office wall and that is their equivalent that, yeah, this is the Aris Mu distant model. And so this explains exactly where all the different countries in the world are. And when they talk about the, the, the proof of the flat Earth, they even use this to demonstrate, because they say if you were to fly from Santiago in Chile to Sydney in Australia, you don't take a direct flight, you stop in America. Now, why would you do that if Santiago is, is down? I'll put this down for a second if, so I don't confuse. But if Santiago is down here in South America and Sydney's over here, why would you come to North America first? That's a long way. Well, actually, if you look on this model, you can see it makes sense to go from Santiago to Australia via America. So it's a straight line. So obviously it makes sense. So this model works much better. Obviously what they miss is that direct line, the reason you're stopping in America isn't refueling the plane, it's letting people off because not everybody wants to go from Sydney to Santiago. So they use America as, a as an exchange point, but they use this model to, to, to even prove using proofs like that, which feel persuasive at a gut level until you really start really thinking about the detail involved in them. A lot of effort put into it. Not all the effort, but a lot of effort put into constructing these. OK, we'll come back to this. Um, Deborah, morning. How are you? I'm very well. How are you? Uh, yes, I'm doing all right. I, um, and how what's your show and tell for us? Well, I've got, I thought I would um, I would introduce you to my Pazuzu. Um, and for those of the, the, the truly literate among you who watch horror films, because it is the highest form of art, this is the poor guy who got the blame for all the trouble in the Exorcist movies. And uh, this was um, this one is modelled off the original prop. But unfortunately, the, the, he's actually based on a storm, a Babylonian storm god who was much maligned because the original god was bad tempered. But he wasn't Satan himself. So um, I, I think he got a bit of a bad rap, really. Uh, and I find this interesting because it was I love The Exorcist just as a, a film. I mean, The Exorcist one and three, both absolutely excellent films. But they were kind of um, 
a rebound, I suppose, against the liberal values of the 60s as well, because the exorcist and the idea that Satan really operates in the world is uh, a conservative rebound from free love and freedom. This It was a very conservative film that you had to go to um, a, a very institutional power to prevent Satan going mad in the world. And I, I see it as part of a sort of a continuum of uh, the beginning really of, of the satanic panic and people really worrying, uh, conspiracy theory, um, really worrying that people are um, letting people's blood and sexually molesting children. And I mean, these, you know, we know that um, children do get molested. It's more likely to happen in a church than in a satanic uh, ritual, of course. But um, it's it, it sort of, you know, it is a conspiracy theory which is still with us today. It rose in the 80s down to things like, did anybody over here ever watch the Geraldo Rivera show it's kind of like this very very tabloid it's a jeremy vine-esque type thing and there was um there was a big show on there about it which really helped to promote it and then it died down a little bit theoretically at the beginning of the 90s but it's never really gone away and it's it's a great worry because it can ruin people's lives well let's just let's start there then because the thing that um there's many reasons that people come together in these groups and as marsh said they can be very disparate things but they're all they're all kind of united and one of the things that is a very easy uniter if you like is fear which is what you were just talking about the fear that somebody out there is doing very nasty things and and just talk to us a little bit about how fear can unite like why why because these conspiracy theories often are are like someone over there is going to do something nasty to you and we're all going to, you know, it is like a movie uh, sort of plot that we're all going to band together and we're going to, you know, hold out against the nasty people. What is this? How repetitive is that pattern? Deborah, perhaps first. I would say, say very. I mean, I think that if if we look at human behaviour, we can look at the things that are inherent in all of us, which are, are sort of natural ways of seeing the world. We're not built for truth. We're built for survival. So we don't see things as they really are. We see things um, that helpful. For example, we have a heightened tendency to see patterns called we call it apophenia. So um, we might be a bit paranoid. We might tend to favour our in group rather than our out group. We might tend to look for things that already favour our outlook on the world, uh, things that will confirm our outlook on the world. All of these things are latent within us. And then when you have some kind of shocking or destabilising event in the world, um, the psychologist Karen Douglas said basically when people's emotional needs aren't being met, then they revert to conspiracy theories. And it provides a sense of, and superstitions too, it can provide you with a sense of uh, knowledge. It, it reduces your, your cognitive distress because you might not be able to control things, but you have the impression that you can control things and you certainly have the impression that you understand. Mm. And that's, a, so people will, so, so the idea is that the world is a very complicated, confusing place. Mm -hmm. There's all this stuff, noise, people, you don't understand any of it, but if you can put a framework on it, at least you know where you are on the map. Yes, and there are people who would resort to extreme forms of behaviour under stress that they wouldn't normally. So, you know, we see this with criminality as well. The best thing to do is to create a fairly stable society and then you you don't get, you, you know, the, the sort of more mad forms of behaviour don't express themselves. So yeah. we've got... Oh, go on then, Marcia. Well, I was going to say that's something that actually 
actually, strange enough, when I was at the Flat Earth Convention uh, and, and when I've talked to other believers in conspiracy theory, that's something that comes up time and again. And, and at the Flat Earth Convention, it was really apparent that the vast majority of speakers got up on stage and at some point during their talk said along the lines of, I was going through a really tough time in my life and then I found this and it all made sense. Or I had a really messy breakup and I didn't know what was going on. I couldn't quite figure out where I was where I was going and I felt directionless and then I found this. And for a lot of people, they were talking about the personal crises they'd been through, occasionally mental health crises, a breakdown of a relationship, losing someone they love. And it's just something along the way that um, knocks them off track. And they may well entirely recover from that particular crisis and, and feel back in control, but they don't realize they're now on a different track and they're heading off in a different direction because that moment of crisis is what's made them jump jump lines. And I think when we are experiencing crises like that, and we see this in particular during the pandemic, as we're all experiencing this crisis together, um, one way to try and uh, rec reclaim your life in, in, in these times of uncertainties is to put that framework onto the world and to say, well, it may seem this is all chaotic. It may seem like random chance has such a, a, a large influence on our lives, but actually this is all going to plan. And yes, it's a malevolent plan, which you'd think would be quite a negative thing, but actually it's quite encouraging because if there's a malevolent, a malevolent plan, there are bad guys, if there are bad guys, we can stand up and defeat them. Um, random chance and the chaos theory make for very unsatisfying villains in your in your grand narrative. So you need to find a scapegoat. Then you can just rise up together. And there's something you can do actively to, to take back control of your life. And I suppose in a complicated world, there's just, I mean, there's no, it's not like there's a simple framework out there. You know, there's always complications. Whatever, however consistent a science-based approaches. It's got its complications. It's always got its like caveats and nuances and all that. Let's come to the, the outside. I mean, Marcia, we're talking about the um, being outsiders because that is the other thing. There's fear and then there's this feeling of like, I've got my tribe, but my tribe is defined by not being a sheep. <laughs> mm, mm. Why is that so powerful? Well, I think especially when people have gone through experiences that leave them feeling isolated and vulnerable, that idea of having um, special knowledge, special insight into the world. I can understand this in a way that you can't. You think that the virus is real, you know, wake up sheeple, this is all just a tool of government control, that kind of thing gives people a sense of elevated purpose, elevated power, elevated insight. And I think <laughs> that really helps them uh, find their place in the world again. And I think that idea of being outsiders often some of that outsidering isn't it doesn't happen deliberately it's not somebody who feels well actually i'm going to step away from all of those people they can be they can find themselves on the outside for whatever has happened in their life and then they start looking for groups that they can be part of you know how can we all be outsiders together how can we all not fit in together and I think that's actually one of the, the dangers that we see, unfortunately. When you see an idea like Flat Earth, it feels very light and silly and harmless. But the people who are believing it are then kind of isolated away with people who believe in Flat Earth and a load of other more dangerous ideas, you know, anti-Semitic ideas, ideas about um, about how, how the world is run and who's in control and various things like that, which go into some quite dark places. And once you've already left the mainstream group to join that group, it's much, much harder to leave that group because of something appalling that is believed and thought. It's much more likely that you'll double down and stick within that group than find yourself outsiders of the outsiders looking for a third tribe. So that that tribal nature and that that need to fit in actually does drive a lot of this. But unfortunately, it's also part of this radicalization process that people uh, people go through. I think 
there's a demographic element to it as well, because if you look at funky beliefs, uh, women are more likely to believe in um, sort of, you know, I don't know, aura cleansing or uh, contacting the dead. Um, and men are more likely to believe in conspiracy theories. Mm. And exactly that factor that Marsh just mentioned about women are more pro-social, women are more likely to find friends when they're when they're desperate or lonely. Um, and men have a harder time with that. Uh, statistically, not all men, but you know, if you look at a sort of normal distribution curve. So if you're going to have a demographic in society, which is going to feel lonely, um, and not able to socialize, uh, then it's chances are it's going to be men. So how about the women? So let's just go, you know, in, on those broad gender generalizations. And, I, you know, the, this I believe you on the statistics, um, but they're also generalizations for the women. Then the, the where do those superstitions and beliefs come from? If that if that's not looking for a tribe quite as much, where, where does that come from? Um, I would imagine, well, well, it depends which one. There are loads of them. But if uh, you look at, for example, the rise of spiritualism in the mid 19th century in the US, there were all sorts of things that fed into that, including the lack of institutional religion in new places where people were working. So if people were looking for religiosity, it was going to be charismatic and it was probably going to be delivered by one prophet because institutional religion hadn't made its way there yet and cornered the market. But at the same time, um, women were trying to find power in society. It was very closely allied with the suffragettes, for example, later on. Spiritualism started in the mid-19th century um, and the suffragettes started a, bit, a little bit later than that. And so I think it was, um, you know, it was women trying to find their voice in society in what was a very repressive patriarchal uh, environment. Um, and having a voice is important. We see that on social because social media kind of gives everyone a voice, but it also gives you a way of measuring your voice. Yeah, it, it absolutely does. And also, if you are if you're a person who, with the, the 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 sheer force of your personality, can persuade other people that you have powers, um, then you're a very powerful person. I mean, there must there were many working class women who were cunning women or who who kind of you know just had strange experiences and people would go, oh, she knows, or you can go to her or she sees spirits or something like that. So it was a way of um, of getting power where there were no other demarcations of power at all. And conversely, uh, when you get witch accusations, which um, didn't just happen hundreds of years ago, I mean, this has been a normal part of, of poor people's lives for really uh, until sort of well, very, very recently, before the First World War, really, um, then you would get somebody who was uh, part of an outgroup, who was an outcast, and it was a way of, it, it was a way of kind of cutting her off from the social group. Uh, it was usually a woman, not always. Um, the classic witch trials involved men as well. But uh, yeah, so it, it's kind of a way of defining your social group, if you like, as to whether somebody's in or out. So there's a question here from, so we're going to mix in, we do have questions from the audience uh, saying that I'm assuming most uh, of these theories, he calls them nonsense theories, start out based in some element of truth. So, you know, his example is the first Bigfoot sighting was probably a bear, someone, you know, saw a shadow, had big feet, and then this whole thing grows out of it. So he's asking what your favourite examples are of this, something that, that starts with a grain of truth in it or a thing that someone really did see and then just completely spirals into something else. Uh, who's going to go? Marsh, do you want to go first? Um, I was going to say... Marsh, do you want to go first? Um, I was going to say, does Deborah want to go first? I uh, feel like Deborah that fits that uh, while I while I think of the best conspiracy theory that fits that. Well, funny enough, because you started um, 
with the vampire story that I'm following up at the moment. And it's going to be, the, the stuff I've written is going to be published in the Vampire Chronicles, I believe in February. Um, they're available. Do you want to just tell us what the Vampire Chronicles is? <laughs> it's, it is a, it's a journal based in Australia and they um, are interested in the, the anthropology of vampires and the literature of vampires. It's as, as much as it seems like it wouldn't be, it is a respectable area of, <laughs> of study because uh, while we don't believe in vampires, at various times people really have. So that means something. That says something about human beings. It's not as silly and frivolous as we think. But and what's brilliant about the journal is that they've given it a name that sounds like it's straight out of, um, you know, a myth. A myth. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, good marketing. Um, and the thing with this particular case, it was a case in Croglin, um, Croglin, the Vampire of Croglin Grange, and I did a talk on it at Conway Hall actually in 2019 that's still on YouTube so if you're interested you can go and have a look at it and what it turns out is that when you look at it it kind of contains part of the narrative contains grains of truth about the environment about the various families that were living there there is no vampire I'm sorry if that disappoints anybody just want to um, tell us what the what the story is or what the the, 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 the superstition is? Yes, there was a woman who, there was a family who took over um, a remote farmhouse, uh, a sister and two brothers, and they were, they were occupying this place and to cut, you know, cut a long story short, the vampire attacked the sister in a in an extremely kind of, you know, 19th century uh, literature, literary kind of way. And um, then ran away and they finally tracked the vampire down and killed it. Uh, but of course, vampires don't belong in England. We have different kinds of malignant entities that are going to kill people. This it was, was before Brexit, was it? <laughs> yes. And it was, it's so classically, it's so obviously taken on so many literary elements that you, you've got to think, well, you know, really, were people reading Dracula? Were people reading Varney the Vampire when they came up with this story? Because that's exactly the way it reads. And so I go through the different sources for this story, uh, work out who are the good sources, who are the bad sources, and kind of get back to the truth of what was actually there and where the various elements of the story come from. And it is interesting to me because I can do this you know this only happened just over 100 years ago but when you've got an anecdote that's say four or five hundred years old and it sounds really weird and funky and people say there must have been something to it because all of these different people said the same thing there must have been a werewolf there must have been you know an angel um and of course, we can't debunk that particular story, but we can debunk others and say, look, it probably follows the same pattern. It's probably people with good faith using the, the heuristics, the, the general rules of thumb that they cognitively work with um, of their time. And then having memory conformity. So people talk about something and then all of their memories tend to then create the same kind of a story. Um, and so many of these factors lead to this one perfect story that's created in the middle. And it isn't true. But it's so very in, potent. In this case, then, how how the, the the vampire case you were talking about. Is a 
How much did it take at the start? Did did someone see something? That, how how little? How small were the real bits at the start? I guess that's what I'm asking. It was absolutely totally tiny. There was a guy called Augustus Hare who was well known for just wandering around with titled people. He liked posh people, so he wrote his memoirs about talking to posh people and also um, travelling around Europe a little. And he liked the odd ghost story. So we have a lot of um, we have a classic black dog story, for example, a demonic black dog from him um, and he so he collected them as interesting stories at second hand and people took it literally um, so it, it really did start off that small I mean and, and then people there were two kinds of writers upon it afterwards there were people who actually went there and tried to pick the bones out of it and then there were people who just sold their book by collecting a load of stories and put embellishments on that had been that had come from their own imagination not from any further research so it can be very small so how about the theorist marsh what 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 small seeds can be sown that big things grow out of well so um i was thinking i did interview a guy once who believed that the world was hollow and one of the reasons he believed the world was hollow was looking back over tales of people who said that they'd seen evidence of uh, the hollow earth. And so they talked about he talked about a um, a sailor who had been um, shipwrecked and had had to walk across. Uh, I forget exactly where it was uh, up in, in Scandinavia and had walked for days. And that sailor swears that over in the sea, he could see evidence of a city that wasn't really there. And from that sailor's tales and from people who had, um, for example, went to uh, an Inuit community and had seen that the Inuit community was was had been suffering from plague and left and when they came back a, a little while later everybody was gone from those two the, those two starting points and from a, a few other small starting points uh, they extrapolated to say well that sailor the the things that he saw weren't simply that he had been walking for days without food or water and had hallucinated or anything like that that must have actually been a city from inside of the world being projected out via physics we don't quite fully understand yet. And that Inuit city who were blighted, or Inuit population who were blighted by plague, they couldn't have disappeared because they died of plague. It must have been that they all escaped the plague by going into the centre of the earth. And by talking to, to this chap who's written several, written several books on the, on the hollow earth, we start to, to then go further into his idea of how we know the earth is hollow. And he said, well, we know that, you know, the, that people have sailed there in Viking times, you know, these Inuit uh, communities went there. We know that, um, the Nazis escaped there after the Second World War, and that's why lots of Nazis were able to, to get out of Germany. And he said, so, so some of them took U-boats, um, which, uh, which obviously the Nazis famously had, um, but other Nazis uh, flew there on the spaceships given to them by the people from Venus. At which point I said, well, hang on, isn't that a bit <laughs> odd that the Nazis had access to Venusian spaceship technology during the Second World War? Wouldn't they have used that to win the war? He said, oh, no, well, um, they promised the people from Venus they wouldn't use them. I said, right, but the Nazis famously weren't really the ones to keep their promise. You couldn't really trust them. He said, well, no, actually, the Nazis were entirely misunderstood. All they were doing was just defending their territory from, from external attack. And we very quickly got into a position where he was literally uh, apologizing for the Nazis and literally supporting the Holocaust and, and denying the Holocaust from a position of the world is hollow. And it all just kind of flowed from that. And so I think that's the kind of thing that I see where small extrapolations, once they feed into a, a, a pre-existing bias people might have, can be used to inflate this this overarching uh, huge narrative that is unsustainable on these very small details and, and goes into some pretty pretty extreme places pretty quickly. So it's kind of this idea of playing join the dots and there's three dots on the page and someone connects it up to make the Mona Lisa. And yeah, then, absolutely. Yeah, one, of, one of the people I, I heard speak at the Flat Earth Convention was um, an, um, an Argentinian uh, conspiracy theorist. And he was saying, we know for a fact uh, that the UN is a front for the one world order. 
And we know this for a fact, because if you look at uh, the initials UN, you look at it in Spanish, uh, they, they, the UN's name in Spanish is the ONU. You know, it's, it's like, you know, organization of uh, national union, unions, that kind of thing. So ONU. And if you read that backwards, that's UNO, which is Spanish for one. And that's why we know that the UN is a front for the one world order. And I was sat in the convention with a friend of mine who leant over and said, does he realize UN is already French for one? Because he could have shortcut a lot of that logic if he had just switched languages. So there's, there's a very interesting there's a thing here, which I think is um, we, we really should talk about because uh, there is it is a human thing to believe that I am right and the rest are idiots. And we live very much in a world and we can see it with the tribalism at the moment where if presented with even an uncomfortable fact, not even one doesn't have to be particularly uncomfortable, there is this instinct to go, oh, they're all idiots. They've measured it wrong. They're off with their conspiracy theory. I have perfect logical belief and I am completely untouchable because I have a rational brain. Right. Mm. And the problem is that everybody thinks this. <laughs> so what the thing I want to ask you both about is where are the places? None of us are perfect. right? All of us, to some extent, are guilty of these cognitive biases that generate these things. So where do we, how do we work on that in ourselves? Like how do, how do people, because the world at the moment is very tribal and the more tribal it gets, the more, you know, it's a kind of self-reinforcing thing, but it's because of this, it's because everyone is convinced that they are rational and everyone else is an idiot. So what do we do in society? Like how do we all start with ourselves? Mm. You know, how do we check our own conspiracy theories? I guess that's thing number one. And then what do we do about it in society? Um, yeah, I, I think on, there's, there's two things two things we could do that would help enormously one is to slow down slow that's that that's that step down between uh, finding something out and spreading it so don't just hit retweet on that thing that uh, hits you at a gut level that you think must be true because you like it so much um, actually stop and really think about it and if we just allow us, ourselves that extra little bit of time before we spread the the rumor and the gossip it allows us to actually think about it and to, to spot whether it might be playing into our pre-existing biases and, and hitting us at a gut for something that we we want to be true and therefore we're not really checking it so that's the first thing we do is just slow down a bit in our distribution um it's we're in a, in a, a, a unique point in history History, I think, um, and maybe Deborah will correct me on this if uh, if there's other historical precedents uh, where our, our ability to disseminate information quickly to a mass audience um, is is so much greater than it ever was before. Previously, you had to have a, a printer and a newspaper and a, and a distribution service, and there was time that took to get stuff out. Now you can tweet something out to thousands of people without even thinking about it before you even fully woken up in the morning. So I think slowing things down will will help. And then the other thing uh, that I think would help enormously is that we we should be looking to fact check the things that we agree with and not just the things we disagree with, because the thing we'll all be guilty of. And I'm equally guilty of it. It's the first thing that, that, that my, my gut instinct is when I see a fact that looks wrong to me. I see a claim that looks wrong to me. I go and check it. Hang on, that can't be right. And I'm going to Google for you know the first thing I can find that proves it wrong in order to demonstrate that I was right. And I don't do that when I see something that I think is probably true. And what that all, all that's doing is that's allowing me to to support my pre-existing biases and to to carry on uh, propagating my old world, my own worldview without ever really challenging it. So we should look to try and check the stuff we agree with, with at least as much rigor as the stuff we disagree with, because we're, we're going to be much more enthusiastic about checking the stuff we disagree with. We need to have the discipline. And, and I think in some ways that idea of skepticism is almost a perverse instinct in that we aren't built to do it. And when we when we are doing it, we're sort of going against our own grain uh, to do it. I'm 
uh, obviously we weren't built at all. Yeah, <laughs> I'll, I'll get that. Get we didn't evolve. 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 Sort of basically agree with Marsh that technological advances mean that we can speak to each other in different ways, and the technological advantage uh, advances that we've had over the last twenty years mean that we can talk to each other, and it's it's not all sort of exchanging scientific ideas. Clearly, we can exchange nutty ones too. Um, one of the one of the most notorious werewolf cases that we have access to, sixteenth um, century, is because there was a, a pamphlet. Um, you know, published about it and all of the details about it. So uh, at that point, people were consuming lurid information through the relatively new format um, of of the printed pamphlet. Um, I love the idea of the precursor to Twitter being pamphlets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, little chat books. Uh, and the other thing I would say is, I, I would I would really really like. I know school curricula are really um, completely jam packed, but I. I don't know if it's improved since I was at school. I don't think it has because I've spoken to people who've done sciences. I did sciences at school and I learned an awful lot about alcohols and aldehydes and momentum and, you know, all of these things. I don't think I ever did the philosophy of science, what science is, the way that you think. And I think that we can all make the mistake that of thinking that because we live in a technological society, that our brains are technological. And it's not true. You can have, you know, you can have some of the most space age tech that you've ever seen in your life in your hand and still not be able to think straight. So, um, you know, learning about uh, control groups in experiments, learning about experiments, learning that science isn't um, a body of knowledge, that it's a procedure. That could be something that you could teach 14-year-olds. I mean, you, you know, th that is really, really important, the philosophy of, of how to think well. Um, and I think that you can go through a whole education, you can, you can get a degree, you can, you can go through a whole education, and you could have missed out on that. And that's not a good thing. And I think it's probably made harder. I agree it's probably made harder by, you know, that Arthur C. Clarke quote about anything any sufficient any advanced technology is indistinguishable for any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic and the problem yeah. is that an iphone is basically magic mm. i mean the num the fraction of the population that could really tell you how it works yeah is vanishingly small and for everyone else it is just magic and we're going to move on to uh, some some other questions we've got here so um the there's one from indigo here talking about the netflix behind the curve film uh all about flat earthers and uh indigo says that uh that what struck them about it was at the end they do their measurements with their own equipment and it shows them that the world is a sphere and their first reaction is not maybe we're wrong but the equipment is broken <laughs> so maybe we've just we've just answered this but you know these are people the principle here is that these are people who genuinely were like oh well we're going to do our own experiments we're going to do exactly what deborah just said right we're going to get our experiments we're going to have we do our proper scientific tests and then it doesn't work mm. so it must be wrong um what what do we do about that marsh well i think what this comes down to to, to me is that uh, and it's when, when people talk to flat earthers, for example, the thing that they think will work is to say, well, here's proof that the world isn't flat. 
here's a fact that will, that will prove it, here's some evidence that will prove it. Um, and what they're missing is that people don't make their decisions based on facts and evidence first, I don't think. I think we make our decisions based on our, our gut instinct and our pre-existing biases and um, what we'd like to, how we'd like to, to fit a narrative together. And then we find the facts to fi fix it um, or to explain it. So when you talk to a flat earther, what you're really getting when they know you don't believe is not what persuaded them to believe the world is flat, but what they think might persuade you to believe the world is flat. People backfill their evidence. And so when it comes to conducting an experiment like that, it doesn't surprise me at all that when that experiment demonstrates that uh, that they're wrong, they don't throw everything out. Because if you think about who's involved in, and if, if anyone's seen the Netflix documentary Behind the Curve, it's uh, Mark Sargent, who I interviewed on my show, uh, Be Reasonable, um, a, a couple of years previous to the documentary. Um, is one of the main figures in it, and it's many others from the American Flat Earth Convention. And I think you've got to bear in mind that these people are people who aren't who don't just have a passing belief in the in the the flat Earth, but they are people who've like put on conferences about it, are willing to to appear in documentaries about it. For them, being a flat Earth believer is something that's core to their identity. Um, you know, if I asked you, you know, tell me something about yourself, you might say, you know, well, I'm a physicist. Um, they would say, I'm a flat Earther. And it's really hard to overturn something that's core to your identity by just an experiment. It won't happen overnight when it's such a big part of kind of who someone is and how they define themselves. The only way to to get someone out of uh, a belief like that, get to someone to to reflect on their beliefs, is to try and divorce the fact away from their identity. To try and allow them to identify themselves in other ways, so that yes, I might believe the world is flat, but I'm also a car enthusiast who loves rock music or something like that. And then they are they're more than just a flat earther. So when they then can come away from that belief, and this is this is maybe advice for how to 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 um, get people to challenge their belief if it's someone you know in your life uh, who uh, who might believe in in some unusual ideas. It, once you can divorce them. Away Away from seeing this as part of their identity to just a thing they believe, they're much less, much more likely to accept being challenged on it. And, and Deborah, yeah. go on. As I said, Deborah, your past, you, you, you know, your your um, meeting with superstitions came initially with people who did believe in it very strongly, and yes. and you know, you've seen this conversion. Is is that your experience? Have you got things to add? How do you how do you persuade people to examine those beliefs with a more level head, if you like, or heart? Well, over the years, I've done uh, I've done a lot of debating, and you the the drill is always the same with the debate is that you have a hall full of people, and some of them on your side, and some of them on the other guy's side, and then there's the people in the middle who haven't made their minds up yet. And um, the thing I always try to remember when I'm doing a debate is that you are not going to get the extremists on the other guy's side, uh, and really what you're playing for is the people in the middle, and and they always they do a revote at the end and um, the, the revotes never really go significantly into the figures of one side or the other. The revote, the, the revote at the end uh, is, is the distribution of those people in the middle. So um, I would say you can spend a lot of energy trying to convert the real hardcore people and you're wasting your time. Uh, the main thing is don't be a dick because you carry um, for, for a start, people don't believe stupid things purposefully. They do that. They're not stupid. And if you are patronizing or rude, you're not going to carry those people in the middle with you. They're just going to think, well, I don't want to be a dick. So, no, I'm voting the other way. So, you know, just be as if you're in a position where you can speak to someone, be as reasonable as you can. And then you 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 might 
actually influence people who are within earshot. You might influence them, but you know, you're not going to get everyone. And if you if you just resort to being rude or patronising, well, you just let yourself down. Well, that I, brings I just add to that. Actually, I, I completely agree with that idea of kind of compassionate skepticism of trying to 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 show that we can challenge these ideas without being um, a dick about it. And I think one of the things that can actually be useful about that is occasionally when I have conversations with people who are who believe in some pretty extreme ideas, I might be the only skeptic they've ever actually had a conversation with because they've always been told, oh yeah, the people who don't believe us, oh they're awful, rude, aggressive, dismissive, patronising, etc. Um, and so they've never bothered engaging. And so if you can have a conversation and even if you don't adjust their worldview in terms of what facts they believe at all, but they come away thinking, actually, that skeptic seemed like an all right person to talk to. Um, they might be more willing to listen to people or listen to challenges in the future. You might just start to to break a little little chink in the armor by not fulfilling the stereotype they've been told, because that stereotype is a way of kind of holding reason or people who might be trying to bring reason at arm's length. Um, and I think it might have been something that early scepticism was a bit guilty of. Mm. Yeah. Well, thing, so I've got right, be in my bonnet. That, so I get you know, involved in media training. I, I think media training should be considered passe. And what we need is training and talking to your, your the person you think of as your awkward neighbour. The rest of it, doesn't no one needs to practice sitting in front of a microphone they need what we actually need to train people in is having those conversations mm. in a respectful way and that's my mm. separate bee in my bonnet um it does it does lead us on to a question you've covered some of this uh from Portia and and Portia says that um they worry that due that due to the belittling behavior of certain high profile people in the skeptic movement this has made things more tribal than ever and reason and evidence is now positioned as another loud yelling opinion on twitter rather than striving for rationalism and that rationalism in inverted commas, as you were saying, Marsh, has been um, co-opted to attempt to validate other horrid things. So mm. there's always the problem is the problem, I guess, is that with Twitter, it's the loudest voice, like whether it's Twitter or something else, it's the loudest voices. Right. Yeah. And the loudest voices and the ones who get amplified do don't tend to be the reasonable voices. They yeah, tend to be yeah. people who are poking sticks. I think also everybody wants to, wants to see themselves as reasonable and rational. And there are some subjects it's very, very easy to be reasonable, reasonable and rational about. I mean, there's very few people who have a very committed belief to um, a very, very committed belief to talking to the dead. There's probably more people who, who would believe that that's not something you can actually do. That's a side that I would agree with. Um, so it's very easy to come to the right conclusion on that. And then come to the come to the 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 get into the habit of saying, well, I'm right about that, and I was right about homeopathy. So clearly, um, I'm just right about stuff. And so once you if you develop that mentality, which I think it's it's just it's tempting to get into, but I don't think it's it's helpful to get into. You start to become, well, I am a skeptic. Point me at something to be right about, which is the wrong way to be. Unfortunately, I think the way we should be is that I'm a skeptic, which means I will try as much as possible to be skeptical, to be reasonable, to be rational, knowing full well I'm going to fail occasionally but because i know that i'm going to fail i'm hopefully going to fail a bit less because i'm aware of my own limitations i'm aware of the the impacts of my own um, subjectivity and i'm trying to sort of be aware of and mitigate those but as soon as you see skeptic as a big capital s thing that you are and you can therefore just opine on anything uh, having trained yourself to always be right about everything is is the moment you develop such massive blind spots that your own biases just pour through them and uh, and you're you're unable to see them well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it should be the process. It's like science. It's a process of questioning and dealing. Mm. And it's not it's not a position. Yes, it's a process. But yeah, it's not your, just a, a set of positions that you have to come to hold. It's how you evaluate, evaluate the world. 
Yeah. On the topic of how to evaluate the world, so there's there's a um, we're take a bit of a left turn at the traffic lights now. Um, Deborah and Marsh, you won't be able to see this, but we were sent a video this week. Trent was sent a video uh, or quite the question for me, which and it's a video uh, hopefully playing on the screen now. And what you can see is there's two glasses that look like uh, wine glasses that look like they're full of something like champagne. But at the top of each one, the foam, if you like, from the champagne pokes up above the top of the glass and there's two soap bubbles sitting over the foam. So you've got a glass with a kind of dome of foam and then the two glasses are moved together and the two bubbles join and there's this wonderful wave as you kind of get this u-shaped bubble formed which is full of this foam which had been there before and the question that came with this video was what witchcraft is this <laughs> um and i thought that was very interesting because so i uh watched it and and my initial reaction as someone who studies bubbles and has spent a lot of time watching foam is that i am pretty sure that what that is is um soap bubbles that are filled with uh either foam or dense smoke when you join two soap bubbles together you can actually see the shape what's happening is that the the material inside so the the foam or the smoke is slowing down. the speed at which the soap bubble can respond so you can actually see what it's doing so what you see here is something that happens every time two bubbles join together it's just that because of what's inside the bubbles it's slowed down the speed that they can move and you can see all these amazing ripples and so so the video here, so so I think that's what it is. I think it's um, it's it's smoke or foam inside two soap bubbles, and when the two bubbles join together, just for a second, uh, you can imagine you've got two spheres that are just touching, and the whole sort of that you get a little tunnel through between the two of them, and um, then you've got pointy bits on the soap bubble, and soap bubbles do not like pointy bits. Basically, it's it's a very, very energy expensive position to be. So basically, there's a force that is pulling this pulling the um, bubbles pulling the pointy bits outwards and that sends a ripple out across the whole bubble and the reason i the, it's interesting so it's a nice it's a lovely video um it's it's interesting because i looked at it and said oh i understand that um i think i understand that i haven't done it myself so you know there is there's room for my own skepticism there's room for skepticism about my own answer here um but someone else and i'm sure they were using the witchcraft the word witchcraft um you know tongue in cheek but to someone who doesn't have a bit of science knowledge, that does look like, you know, you could, you could say you've just opened a portal to another universe. Mm. You know, it, it does. There is an open space for any explanation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we see this. We see this in the, in the flat Earth world. I think a lot of the world. I think a lot of the um, the arguments people put forward as, as evidence that the globe model is wrong. Um, are arguments that appeal to a gut level understanding of what should happen in the world without a real full, full engagement with the physics of the real world. So some of the arguments, there's a, a very popular uh, YouTube uh, video which was turned into an ebook, um, which was from Eric Dubay, which was pretty much the start of the modern flat earth movement in 2015, the, 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 the big online flat earth movement. And that lists, you know, 100 proofs or 200 proofs the world is not a spinning ball, I think it's called. And in that it's got things like um, people in Australia are on the ups, on the underneath of the earth they would just fall off if they were really upside down people don't feel upside down in australia if you zoomed in on paris from space the eiffel tower would be perpendicular to the world at times and we know that can't be true and there's things like um rivers can only ever run downhill but if you have a river on a curved surface this river has to run uphill before it goes down again and what we're seeing is if you haven't got a good or even a lay understanding of what physics of the real world actually are, 
that might feel persuasive to you because it fills exactly as I was saying, it fills that gap. Well, hang on, how can rivers run uphill? That makes no sense. And so you have to really engage with the physics of the world you're throwing away before you throw it away. And it's that idea of uh, making sure that we do the due diligence on an idea before we dismiss it, which is what the good sceptical uh, angle is, what good science is, what good scepticism is, which is, well, hang on, what is the good explanation for why rivers can run uphill in that way? And how, what is actual gravity and what is really going on in the globe model? And once I understand that, I'll then be able to dismiss it rather than say that looks sus because rivers can't run uphill, therefore get rid. What we see in conspiracy theory is finding the easiest way possible to, to quickly dismiss an idea that you don't want to engage with in case it challenges your worldview fully. Uh, and I guess I, that is, part of this is to do with spatial reasoning, but we all assume that everyone else has the same spatial attitude to the world as we do. And, and that is a learned thing. You know, it's, mm. like you said, a lot of this is not natural. I just want to talk about defending, you know, we've talked about defending conspiracy beliefs, but Deborah, when it comes to defending superstitions, do how does that work when people have a, you know, it's not, um, it's not, it's not as strong, perhaps. It's not a big thing in the world. They're perhaps not convinced that the whole world is against them, but they've got their thing that they believe. How, do, how does this work with superstitions instead of conspiracies? Well, the first thing I would say is that people tend to think that superstition and religion are separate um, and that religion is... Uh, is respectable and superstition isn't. And um, you have to then start with, well, actually, they're pretty much the same thing. Religion has a, a political element to it as well as a hierarchy. Um, and, you know, sort of approved forms of getting qualifications and becoming, you know, the, the high priest, whatever it is. But um, that really, um, it depends. I mean, throwing salt over your shoulder is just, who cares? It's an expression of a natural human behavior you know somebody you know really cared about it and so you've picked it up and you feel uncomfortable if you don't do it it's like the walking under ladders and that kind of thing um well the interesting thing about walking under ladders that's always struck me is there are quite good reasons for not walking under a ladder yeah. so yes there are you can, there's this interesting and it's something we see a lot um in in communities in um in indigenous communities that when they are supposed to remember to do a thing, instead of telling people all the practical reasons why you should eat this plant and not that plant, it, there's a story. Mm. And everyone remembers yes. the story better than they remember all the reasons you're not supposed to eat, you know, ivy. So how is that you're, you're right is that some of it's adaptive um mo and in fact this is kind of it comes down to a basic question of how do people acquire these beliefs you know is it because sort of from top-down type um approach that the, the sort of intellect has taught them that this is the way it is and that it's useful or is it from sort of bottom up where their their senses have have just um, produced a pattern in their brains that um that you know in fact most people's behavior is a combination of both of those factors it's learnt and kind of ingrained and so you can you, you've got this you've got this um this range where where you can choose to be where somebody's uh, socialization can end up putting them um and i i would say with regards to superstition that the some of them are adaptive um an awful lot of them aren't and they're just the kind of emergent um you know stuff that happens as part of our sort of cognitive misfirings cognitive you know misfirings that are generally helpful but it doesn't really matter if they if they sort of produce this this odd ephemeral behavior sometimes but there are superstitions which really matter because they make a difference in the world one of those is um the belief in demons the belief in devils the belief in witchcraft and um 
the belief in demonic possession because uh, not so much not so much in our society but not entirely free of it either but especially in places like africa people will use these um uh, and people will get killed. There's a fantastic guy called Leo Igwe, uh, who's in Nigeria, I believe, and he um, is associated with the British Humanist Association. He uh, campaigns against uh, witch belief um, in various places in Africa. And uh, you can see the, the mechanism is very clear. Basically, if you have a child who doesn't have an adult to look after it, then that child is a burden economically on the society. And nobody wants to just just go and get rid of someone because then you're the bad person but if that child is a witch then you can do so with a clear conscience you can starve it to death or you can actually literally physically kill it and that was the same kind of dynamic that you got an awful lot of village witchcraft in Europe when people were just people were poor um, so I think we have to recognize the the bad cognition the, the bad mental models that people have in the world in order for them to believe things. But we also have to understand the economic and social dynamics that mean that these things will be acted upon. Uh, so I, I think that's the biggest key for us is to not write people off as just being stupid, but actually have a look at the whole situation and wondering why this dynamic is causing harm to people. A lot of this does come back to people wanting to justify their own behaviour. And we, I mean, we do it in a science-based society. You know, if you're watching someone, I don't know, have an x-ray for a broken leg and they say that hurts, then everyone would say, oh, well, you have to keep, you know, you have to put up with the pain because this is going to help you in the long run. And actually, it's always struck me as quite interesting in hospitals because I do believe that putting up with a bit of pain in an x-ray machine is going to help you in the long run. But yeah. also, you're asking someone to believe that. You you know, you, you come into this place, this hospital, and you you believe that this is going to make them better, even though you don't understand. So actually, we all do this all the time. We all take on trust that, that there, there are things that need to be done, which are, you know, this second, it's a bad thing. But in the longer term, maybe it's a good thing. And we all take stuff like that on trust all the time. Um, and so it's interesting, I think, to define whether, you know, just the boundaries. What's the difference between that kind of thinking and, oh, well, throw some salt over your shoulder, otherwise something's going to go wrong tomorrow. You know, yeah. they're not well, that far yeah. apart. From a view of conspiracy theories as well, this is a really interesting one because some conspiracy theories are true. So you can't say to somebody, oh, well, you know, the, the, it's just all rubbish. You're just creating these these patterns where none exist. I mean, it, there apparently was some evidence that the government during Prohibition did um, taint alcohol so that it was poisonous. There are, there are various things which, which turn out after the event to be true. And so... Um, you know that that makes our job a lot more challenging mm. and and it's also um the um oh lost my train of thought there for a second um but yeah so anyway so that, so there's a question here from um benjamin r80 which is it comes back to this self-justifying thing i think and benjamin asks why do so many of the people with anti-scientific views turn to science to prove them um, like that's a very odd thing to do. If you if you're saying, well, science is rubbish, but then you're like, well, here is my evidence, mm. which looks like a scientific experiment. And science has this weird status in society where you sort of can't argue with it, but people do, and then they use it to. It's a bit weird. How does all that work, Marsh? Yeah, I that work, Marsh. Yeah, I I think um, what's happening there is the the people who hold um, anti-science views, and we might look at like vaccines, uh, vaccine denial, something like that. 
the reason that they come to hold those views isn't because of scientific evidence or facts that kind of got them into that position. A lot of people who don't believe in, uh, who believe that vaccines are dangerous, comes from a very visceral fear of actively doing something that you that might harm you or your children. It's one thing if you're if you catch an infectious disease, well, that's just bad luck. That happens to people. You can't really do much about that. But if you get vaccinated and something bad happens, you kind of brought that on yourself. And so there's that visceral fear of what if what if what I'm doing actually does have this effect. I mean, they're wrong, but that's the kind of fear that they have, the viscera that they that they feel it with. Um, that is why they hold that belief. But they know that you don't hold that belief. And they know that what persuades you to your side is science. And so what they're doing is they're using the tool of science that people they disagree with to try to persuade them because they're, they're it's almost like they're recognizing, well, what do the people I disagree with value and how do I use that set of values to persuade them? And I think actually that's not a bad tactic. Now, unfortunately, they're, they're picking science, which isn't on their side, which doesn't help support their case. And they end up misusing science and misquoting things or using poorly conducted studies or misrepresenting the, the findings. But the idea of reaching out to someone on their territory is actually a really sensible thing. And that's how we should be looking to persuade people who are anti-vax um, to get vaccinated or to understand that vaccines have a, a, a value and a purpose. We shouldn't be saying, here's the studies that prove that they're, they're right, because they don't care about the studies really. That's not gonna hit them at the visceral level. You need to find what values led them into an anti-vax position and meet them at those values, because without realizing it, they're trying to meet you at your scientific values by persuading you using science. Which is really interesting, messed up, isn't it? <laughs> Yes. I mean, <laughs> yes. I think this comes back to the, the science, thinking that science is a body of knowledge and that their body of knowledge can be pulled out of the hat like a rabbit um, instead of a process um, to which their reasoning doesn't stand up. Um, and the other thing about vaccine hesitancy, I think, is that there are two ways that you can get things really wrong. There's first of all, you can take a positive step. And second of all, you can put something off. That's just taking a negative step. And it's just less distressing to us to put something off than it is to make a decision. So um, on, under those circumstances, that's the, that's the error. It's kind of understandable if people have a problem. Mm. So we're coming, I just wanted to ask quickly, both of you, we've sort of covered some of this, but, you know, for a lot of people, and, and we've had some questions about this, you know, we're living in a complicated tribal world where everyone's arguing all the time and there's lots of conspiracy, there's lots of all of this stuff floating around. Like, what do we do? You know, with all, there's all these nuances and things we've discussed, which is lots of things. But what do you, you know? You wake up in the morning. What am I going to do about all of this? What What are your headline recommendations? Yeah, we've got a few minutes. Let's fix the entire world. Yeah, yeah we can basically. fix the entire world. Yeah, yeah we can. Basically. We can do this. I believe in us. Um, I think one of the things to that will really help is bearing in mind that the people who believe in the ideas we disagree with, even people who believe in ideas that are, uh, are unscientific and even people who believe in ideas that are extreme and ugly and distasteful and, and things are still people. And if we see people just through the lens of the one, this one thing we disagree on or, or you know, a set of things we disagree on, we can sort of end up turning them into caricatures that we can then never turn back into real people again. But remembering that the person who holds these even abhorrent beliefs is a person, we can reach out them, reach out to them at a person, at a, at a personal level, at a, at a humane level. Um, as long as we see the people we disagree with as yeah, two-dimensional caricatures, we're never really going to ever um, embrace anything we need to do to help persuade them. So yeah, when we disagree with someone, remember that they're a person, try to reach them at that, that, that level of personhood. And maybe by having that kind of connection, they feel less isolated from society, they feel less uh, divorced away from the, the more scientific um, positions that we know we can hold with, with robust evidence. And maybe we can start to sort of drag them back to, uh, to reason, kicking and screaming. And that. 
Yeah, um, I would say that if you look at most of the sort of the real crunches in history, there is usually uh, an economic underlying exacerbating factor, uh, you know, too much um, population or uh, difficulty with climate, an awful lot of anti-Semitism in, in uh, medieval Europe came after um, a sort of the beginning of what was called a little mini ice age, um, the climate changed, uh, people had a hard time people had a hard time eating and, um, you know, providing for themselves. So there are some people who will always believe funky things and there's nothing you can do about it. But the worse that our living situations occur, whether those um, those factors happen because of artificial political means or usually there's some kind of factor underneath it, there's, there's you know, climate or uh, harvests or something like that, um, then that's going to make things worse. And I'm, I'm afraid that I'm not particularly... Uh, positive about the future in relation to this because climate change is going to cause an awful lot of misery and human movement um, mm. there will be some places I read I saw a couple of weeks ago there was a riot in I think it was Iran um, and they were having the riot at night because it was too bloody hot to do it during the day can you imagine it being so hot you would die if you had your riot at midday or even four o'clock in the afternoon uh, that is really that's really severe and I think that that will that will drive an awful lot of behaviour for the next 50 years or so. We've got to get hold of this climate change thing. Well, we try to end on a positive note. And, uh, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but, you know, we are facing up to the evidence, so that's all fine. Brilliant. So just before we finish, um, Deborah has a website. Marge has a podcast. Uh, Trent's put the information about those in the live chat, so you can find those there. And I'm sure you can find them both on Twitter as well. As well. Um, do support Cosmic Shambles on Patreon, patreon.com slash Cosmic Shambles. Uh, look out for the tickets for Nine Lessons and Carols this December. Uh, tips for existence. Pay attention to that. And we may or may not see you next week, uh, but we will definitely be back back the week after that so that's it from Cosmic Shambles so have a good day everyone thank you very much for listening support us at patreon.com slash cosmic shambles check out all the other stuff over at cosmic shambles.com follow us on twitter at cosmic shambles or cosmic shambles network on instagram and facebook bye for now this podcast is part of the cosmic shambles network